morning, I'm Joe Collins, and as you can tell by looking at the screen, we are following Jesus through the pages of Mark, and I know you've been waiting, it's been almost a month or about a month now since you've heard one of my cheesy jokes, and so I know you've been waiting with bated breath for a cheesy joke. So there was this burglar, and uh, he broke into a house that he thought was vacant. It was late at night, it was dark, and he was creeping through the room from room to room, and he went into the living room and he heard all of a sudden a voice in the dark that said, Jesus is watching. So the burglar froze, totally unsuspected, totally caught off guard. You know, what is this? He didn't expect this to happen, thought the house was empty. And then he started, you know how your mind plays tricks with you. He started wondering, did I, did I actually hear that? Or was that in my head? What was that? So he's, he sat there frozen for about a minute and then... He started creeping again. Okay, it must have just been in my head. And he goes from room to room, gets back into the living room, and again, this voice, Jesus is watching. He freezes. Now he knows it wasn't just something in his head. Now he's afraid. He's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. He just stands there, and he begins peering around in the darkness, looking, trying to figure out where the voice comes from. And in the corner, he saw a birdcage. And in the cage, there was a parrot. So he walked over to the cage and he looked at the parrot and he said, did you say Jesus is watching? And the parrot said, yes, I did. Relieved, he sighed off. Oh, okay, thought it, was, thought it was the homeowner, whatever. And so he felt much better. So he relaxed and he looked at the parrot and he said, what is your name? And the parrot said, my name's Ronald. He laughed. He thought that was a corny name for a bird. So he said to the parrot, what? who is the idiot that named you Ronald? And the parrot said, the same person who named a Rottweiler, Jesus. <laughs> you never know who might be watching. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Let's pray before we read. Father, it is great to be together this morning. We pray for your spirit to be with us. Speak through me to the church, to me as well. Through your word, help us to know and understand what it is you want us to know and understand today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples and a barbershop quartet. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles. So the Bible tells us here that Jesus left to go to his hometown. Now he was in Capernaum. That's where he had been. And he actually had been there for about a year or so living or basing his ministry out of Capernaum. And at some point uh, after about a year, he decided to go back to his hometown. Now we all know he was born in Bethlehem, but he was actually raised in Nazareth. And if you look at our map up there in Galilee, you see the red star. That's about where Nazareth is. And in the time of Jesus, it was just a small little town, really a village, 400 to 1,500 people max. It did have a, uh, a Roman bath, so that, it had that going for it. But other than that, Nazareth was, was kind of an unknown, uh, uh, you know, small city that no one really thought much of. As a matter of fact, even some of Jesus' own disciples, when they heard the word Nazareth or the town of Nazareth, they actually said, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, it had sort of a a negative reputation 
for, uh, for lack of a better, a better word. Um, and so it was really a nondescript, kind of out of the way, little town. And that's where Jesus Christ was raised, in this town of Nazareth. And after he had gone, uh, you know, after, and, and, and so in, in Mark chapter 6, he decides to go home to spend some time home. Now, in the scriptures, this is the second time that we know of that he went home to Nazareth. He may have gone other times, it's just not recorded, but there's two times that are recorded in scripture. The first one happened about a year before this one. And that took place, uh, and this is going to get tricky, but about a year after Jesus had left Nazareth for the first time. And so if you go back about two years, Jesus was in Nazareth. He was about age 30, and he decided to leave to go down and spend time with John the Baptist. And he was baptized down there. And really, the very beginning, the early foundations of his ministry began there with John the Baptist. He made some connections with some of the men who would later become his own disciples. But after spending a few months down there, he did travel around back up into Galilee. He went to Capernaum. He went to Cana where there was a wedding. And then he eventually made his way back home. That was the first time. And when he showed up the first time, everybody was happy to see him. They invited him into the synagogue and they let him speak. Not unlike when, when uh, we send our kids off to camp and the next Sunday we let them share a little bit about camp. Or, or if someone goes on some sort of ministry trip or if someone does something uh, you know, ministry related and they're away serving somewhere and they come back and we give them a chance to speak. That's probably what it was like that first time Jesus came back to Nazareth. Hey, what was John like? What, what was going on down there? This is really cool. Come into the synagogue. Let's hear you share. And Jesus, in Jesus' fashion, sat down and instead of sharing, he opened up the scroll of Isaiah. He read a passage about the Messiah and then he declared to everyone there in his hometown that he was the Messiah, that he was God's gift to humanity. A lot like when kids go away to college and they come home and they think suddenly they know better than everybody else and they're God's gift. It was kind of like that. And the people in Nazareth reacted exactly as you would react to your own child who went away to school and came home and told, decided to tell you how everything should be and, and that they're God's gift to you now, right? They picked him up, they dragged him out of the synagogue and they tried to throw him off a cliff. That was the first time he had gone back to Nazareth. After that, he escaped the crowd and he went to Capernaum where he began his public ministry, and he served in the Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee for about a year. And now he comes back to Nazareth. Now this time, he comes back with disciples. He's much more professional now. He's much more of a rabbi with followers. Surely, his hometown is going to see who he really is. They're going to see him as, as he ought to be seen, and they're going to welcome him with open arms. And at least initially, they do. Just like before, they invite him in, they welcome him home, they ask him to speak in the synagogue. Now this time, we don't know what he says, but again, we know what, how they react, and they begin reacting negatively. Where did this man get these things? These aren't friendly questions. These are derogatory questions. Where did he get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given him? Even he does miracles. There's a, there's a sense here of, a, of, a, of a, the good feelings melting away. As Jesus is there teaching in the city, in the in the city of Nazareth, in the synagogue there in that city, a lot like 
you know, the holidays. The holidays will be coming up soon, and I know many of us go home for the holidays. And, you know, you go home, and everybody's happy to see you and hugging, and then very quickly, those good feelings sometimes melt away, right? All the old feelings start coming back. All the old opinions of each other start coming back. And, and next thing you know, if it's in my family, fights start happening, and then we end the holidays on such a high note, and then we look forward to next year and do it all over again the next year. Not too different than that. Why does stuff like that happen? <coughs> well, because people, when they get to know you, when they get to know me, when we get to know other people, we tend to develop an opinion about people. And sometimes, given some time, those opinions become fixed. They kind of get stuck in our mind. And so whenever we interact with that person, we just sort of see them through the lens that we've, that we've created about them. You follow me? And that's kind of what happened in Nazareth. Both times Jesus came back, and, and the people in Nazareth knew him when he was little. They knew him when he grew, you know, they knew him as a young man, as a teenager, even as a young adult. And they had a relatively fixed view of him. And unfortunately for them, that view was not that he was the Messiah. They didn't see him as God's gift to humanity. The fact of the matter is, people have a fixed view of you. Like it or not, you go to work and people think of you in that context, and they have an opinion of view of you. Or at home, your family has a fixed view of you. Your parents have a fixed view of you. Your friends that you interact with, they have a fixed view of you. And, and, and it's very hard to overcome a fixed view. It takes a lot of work and a lot of energy to change someone's opinion about you or your opinion about someone else when it gets fixed. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. And this is one of the lessons he taught early in the sermon. <coughs> verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What was he saying to his potential followers there listening to him at the Sermon on the Mount? He was telling them that, hey, if you want to be taken with any kind of credibility, if you want people to think of you respectfully, if you want them to have a good opinion of you, you better raise the bar. You better live to a standard that's higher than the people who already have a high standard. It's a very high call. And the fact of the matter is, if you want to make an impression on someone, especially someone who already thinks a, a certain way about you, the only way to change that impression, the only way to make a good impression, is to elevate the standard that you live by. That's really one of the only things you do. I guess you could change it in a negative by lowering the standard. Sure, you could make their opinion go become negative or more negative of you. But if you want it to be uh, a good opinion of you, you're going to have to raise the bar. <coughs> MLK said this, Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. What was he saying to the civil rights movement? We got to get better than the people around us. That was the message. If we want to be respected, if we want to have a good opinion made about us, we're going to have to get above this low and base behavior. Boy, I wish some of these social movements would take that advice. It just seems constantly in our day and age that the, the next movement after the next movement keeps lowering the bar. It's harder and harder to respect what some of these groups are doing. But hey, when there's a group out there that raises the bar, well now they got my attention. Now I'm willing to give them my respect and my attention. Whenever we as Christians interact with people around us, I think we've got to realize something. 
increasingly in our society, people have a negative view, a negative stereotype of Christianity. Increasingly. It's not all, it's not pervasive, but it's increasing. There's a negative view. And if you and I want to do anything about that, if we're ever going to have any impact on that, we cannot be the basic version of ourselves. We actually have to raise the bar. I want to challenge us in Simi Church to raise the bar. To get past stupid pettiness and differences that turn into conflict. To get beyond poor character decisions. And to become people who are responsible and respectable. We have to be the kind of people that do what we say we're going to do. And what we do needs to be worthy of doing. If you want your kids to respect you and follow you in the faith, you got to raise the bar. They see you like no one else sees you, and their view of you is fixed. And you're going to have to keep raising the bar to earn their respect and to, make the, and, and, and to put into them a desire to be like you. If you want to change your, you know, the culture in your work, or, or if you want to change your, your coworkers or your friendship circles or whatever it is, or the little groups that, that you find yourself in and you're, certain, you're pegged in a certain way, if you want to make a good impression, you got to raise the bar. We can't, we can't continue to be the same year in and year out and earn people's respect. Not for ourselves and not for the faith that we profess. Verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. All right there in the synagogue as Jesus was teaching, it began with these, these initial uh, derogatory statements. Who, where did he get these teachings? Who, who, where did he come from? And then, and then it goes, well, isn't he a carpenter? In other words, doesn't he work with his hands like you and I? <coughs> He's not any better than any of us. Who, who does he think he is saying these things? And then the most, the most vitriol of the negative comments, isn't this Mary's son? say, why is that derogatory? Well, in those days, it was actually appropriate to refer to someone as the dad's son. So they should have said, isn't this Joseph's son? But remember, Mary was pregnant before she got married. Remember, in Nazareth, they, they knew that. Word got out. <coughs> Maybe that's why they had a hard time taking Jesus for anything more than, 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 than who he was, because they looked at him as the illegitimate son of Mary. Maybe that's why they had a hard time. Maybe that was their fixed view, and, and, and that was what was holding them back. But they really take a dig there when they say, isn't this Mary's son? And it says they took offense. The word there for offense is scandalizomai. It's where our word scandal comes from. It means to be repelled, to fall away, to stumble, to fall foul of. They were literally turned off by him. Imagine that. Jesus went to church and preached the message and turned everybody off. That certainly wasn't a seeker-friendly Sunday that day. You know, in, in the church world, there's this big thing about being seeker-friendly. We want to reach people who are unchurched. Well, Jesus didn't do a very good job of it that day. He went in and just blew everybody out of the water and it literally offended them. They disowned him. Here's something that you wouldn't expect to hear at church. Jesus and his message, thank you, is offensive. I want you to think about that for a minute. His message and who he was 
was offensive to people. We don't tend to think of Jesus in that way. We have a fixed view that he just, you know, everybody loved him and everything was great. But that's not the case. He offended people fairly consistently. In three years of public ministry, he offended enough people that they finally arrested him and sentenced him to death and killed him. He only did that in three years. I mean, we look at our politicians, and they got to be politicians 20, 30 years before we want to off with their heads, right? Jesus was way better than they were. But his, his message can be offensive. But how does it become offensive? Like, why was it offensive to people? Because they thought, of, they, thought they knew who he was. They had a fixed view. Oh, he's that illegitimate son of Mary. Yeah, he kept to himself. Yeah, you know, there's nothing, no scandal. We got nothing bad to say about him. But, but who does he think he is coming back here, talking the way he talked? How dare him? And they had a fixed view. And that fixed view prevented them from seeing him for who he really was because he really was God's gift to the world. That's the funny thing. When he announced that the first time in Nazareth, I'm God's gift, he really was. They had a hard time seeing it because they just saw him through the lens of their bias or prejudice, whatever you want to call it. They couldn't see him for who he, he really was. Today, people have that same struggle. Increasingly, as I said before, people are seeing Jesus in a negative light. They're not seeing him in a positive light. And it's not because he was negative. It's because of their prejudice. And usually their prejudice comes from some experience they had with someone who called themselves a Christian. All the more reason why we got to raise the bar. Because every time we lower the bar, every time we act in a way unbecoming of our faith and of Jesus Christ, we, get, we add fuel to the fire to that negative view of Jesus. My prayer is that it's, as Simi Church, as a, as a collection of believers, we, we change the image of Jesus. We, we, we add fuel to the good, to the godly, to the awesome view of who Jesus is. That that's what we communicate to the world around us, not just with our words, but by the way we live. If Jesus had a tough time winning over his own family, his own uh, neighborhood, who are we to think that we aren't going to have a tough time winning over our own family and our own neighborhood? We got to raise the bar. We cannot settle for average as Christians. We cannot settle for just good enough. We've got to be like Christ. And we've got to reflect him in a way that is attractive, that draws people, even when it's hard for them to hear. There are things in scriptures that are hard to hear, but if we can communicate them in love and we can be such a great example, we can win people over. So don't give up. Now, I want to make a side point here. I'm going to go down a tangent for a second, if you will allow me. Notice here that it says, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Now, I did an exhaustive study of this. I spent at least 15, 20 minutes on the internet researching this one. <laughs> and guess what I found out? You know that word brother in the original language in the Greek? Do you know what it meant? It meant brother. And the word sister, again, 15, 20 minutes. I researched it. 
The word sister in the original language, do you know what it meant? It meant sister. The Greeks had a word for cousin. The Greeks had a word for half-brother or stepbrother or whatever. They had words to denote these different types of relationships. They didn't use them. The word they chose, the gospel writer chose, was brother and was sister. And what did they mean when they said brother and sister? They meant brother and sister. Now, we live in a world where there's a large number of people, millions of people, <clears throat> that believe in what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. What that means is that they don't believe she had any other children. I mean, they don't believe that not only did she not have any other children, but she didn't even have any kind of physical relations with any man. That the only person she gave birth to was Jesus, and that was because of the Holy Spirit uh, performing a miracle with her and, and her giving birth to Jesus. And, and, and that doctrine is widespread now throughout the world. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? Is that a salvation issue? No. So what's the big deal? Why are we on this tangent? Why did you turn right down this alley? Why are we even talking about this right now? Well, that, that doctrine led to the elevating of Mary. When I say elevating to Mary, I say more than just honoring her as a faithful woman and a great God-fearing person and someone we should respect as an example, but literally elevating her to the point to where people will pray to her. Mary has her own cult of worship of, around Mary. Now, you may say, how did we get here from there? I, I don't know. I, I imagine that what happened was Mary was very revered and honored in the early church, and that continued on for generations, and then it somehow went from just that to elevating her to something something more, better than people, and then ultimately calling her Mary, the mother of God, in caps as a title, and then leading to the idea that, well, if Jesus doesn't listen to me, maybe if I pray to his mom, she can tell him for me, and that whole weird thing. And now we have millions of people around the world that actually worship and pray to Mary and call themselves Christians. What's my point? My point is that even a small, benign error, over time, if it's not corrected, can to lead to some profoundly wrong doctrine, to, to, to dangerously false teachings, teachings that lead people astray. This can't be any clearer than it's written here. Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, I mean, even naming the names and mentioning sisters. It is clear in Scripture that Jesus had physical half-brothers and sisters from Mary and Joseph. Not, this doesn't mean they were cousins. They had a word for that. That's not the word that was used. This doesn't mean that Joseph had kids before he met Mary. No, there's a word for that. There's a way to, to describe that. This is very clear that after Mary gave birth to Jesus, she was with her husband. They had a whole family. He had lots of younger brothers and sisters. And therefore, Mary is no different than you and I, other than she's a great example of faith, someone we can imitate, someone we can look up to and respect. But by no means does this give us license to going to the point of revering her and worshiping her. I was at a funeral service for a friend of mine who, who lost a family member, and they spent an hour praying to Mary. The Bible teaches very clearly you pray to no one but God and God alone. A simple, 
a small and insignificant misinterpretation, benign uh, false teaching. It may seem, oh, it's not a big deal. Yeah, it's okay. But even those things over time, if they're not corrected, can give birth to some major fallacies. We see this happening constantly throughout the history of Christianity. We're seeing it happen right now in our era when it comes to who you love. And what does the Bible teach about love? And these subtle changes in doctrine, these subtle shifts in the meaning of the words and how they imply them, and they're leading us down a road that's going to lead us very far from the will of God. So we always got to be careful. We've always got to make sure that when we read God's word, even if it is offensive, even if it is difficult for people to hear, that we hold to it. That we don't compromise it, we don't water it down, we don't change it. And we, we're okay. We can be okay that we're going to hold to it even if it's unpopular, even if it turns people off. Our best response is to raise the bar. We just keep being better people and better people and give those people something to model. Give the world around us something to look to to help them overcome what seems so hard to hear and so offensive. Verse 4. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives and and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. That phrase there, only in his hometown is a prophet without, without honor. In our language, it, said, it would mean familiarity breeds contempt. There's something about, again, that fixed view that we develop that really causes us to fail to see somebody for who they really are. And, and again, the people in Nazareth, they couldn't see Jesus for who he really was, God's gift, because they thought that they knew him. So my brother-in-law, Pat, many of you know him, he told me a story one time, and I, I thought it was appropriate for this. It was about a friend of his he grew up with. And, and when they were young teenagers, they, they grew up in Oklahoma several, a couple generations ago in the Bible Belt. But they were fairly wild, and they sowed their oats. And 20 years went by, and he, Pat went home for a high school reunion, and he saw his friend there. Well, his friend had a conversion in his life at some point after high school and had become a, a, a high-ranking member of one of the largest denominations in the country. And when he saw Pat at the reunion, he pulled him aside and he said, you know, Pat, uh, you know a lot about me that most other people don't. Let's keep it that way. And, uh, you know, it was a funny story. Pat likes to tell it. It's very funny. Uh, you know, you get the point. The guy understood. He had a conversion. I'm not saying he was a bad guy, but, he, he, you know, he had some stories he could have told in his past. But he had changed. He had repented. And he'd become this, this other person, this minister. And he didn't want... Pat to go around at the high school reunion dredging up all this old stuff that was all old and gone, and it, would, and it would hurt people's impression of him. You know, Jesus had no secrets. At his 20-year high school reunion, there was no one that he had to pull aside and say, hey, by the way, let's keep that between me, you, and God. And yet they still couldn't see him for who he was. It's, it's an amazing thing what our prejudices and what our biases do to us. And how, wrong, and how skewed they can make us to the point that we don't even see the Son of God right in front of us for who He is. Verse 5, it says, He could not do any miracles there except a few. One of the saddest statements in the Bible. It's not that Jesus couldn't. It was that there was no faith, and so He wouldn't 
How sad is that? In his own hometown, there should have been banners and parades. There should have been a, a fire engine and, you know, kids marching and the whole thing to celebrate his homecoming. But there wasn't. In fact, it was the opposite both times. They just tried to get rid of him because they could not see him properly because they had a fixed view. They had bias, they had prejudice, and it didn't allow them to see him for who he really was. And as a result, he could do no miracles there. There was very little he was capable of doing in the absence of their faith. Now, he could have done miracles, don't get me wrong, but he chooses to do them in the presence of faith. And because there was so little faith, so little miraculous happened. And verse 6 says, and he was amazed. There's only two times in the Gospels that mention Jesus being amazed. Only twice were there things that he was amazed at. One of them was the faith of a centurion, a non-Jew. He was amazed at his faith. And the other one was his amazement at people's lack of faith. Do you want to awe Jesus? Be faithful or be faithless. Those are the two things that blow his mind. Those are the two things that Jesus says, wow, this is unbelievable. This is incredible. Look at this person's faith or look at this person's lack of faith. Jesus is looking for faith. That's where he does his best work. That's where the best things happen is in the presence of faith. So let me ask you a question. What does faith look like? I have a couple of quick scriptures to just paint a picture. I could go on all day. But let's look at just a few things. What does faith look like? Luke chapter 18, verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus said this after teaching the parable of the persistent widow. If you don't know the story, there was a widow. It was a, a made-up story, but she was in a town. She had a problem. She had to go to the judge to get help, and she persistently bothered that judge to the point that he went crazy and said, fine, I'll give you what you want. And at the end of that parable, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And the whole idea is that prayer is how we petition God. And that woman in that story was petitioning that judge for justice. And Jesus used that little example to say, this is the kind of way we should be praying. This is how we should be praying. We should be praying so persistently and so often that God can't help but answer our prayers because we're just flooding them to him. That's one expression of faith. How's your prayer life? <clears throat> is it persistent? Is it desperate? Is it as if only God can answer the request? Next verse, Matthew 8, verse 10. Truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This is actually the passage where Jesus was amazed. It had to do with a centurion, a non-Jew, a Gentile, a Roman soldier who had a sick servant. And he heard about Jesus and he knew Jesus could do miracles. And he, he sent word to Jesus, hey, my servant's sick. Can you heal him? Jesus said, sure, I'll come on over. And the centurion said, no, 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 don't come over. Just say the word. That was an amazing act of faith. And Jesus was amazed that the centurion understood the power and the ability of Jesus in the presence of faith. What does faith look like? It looks like taking God at his word. 
When you read the Bible, do you trust what it says? Are you able to just look at it and go, hey, if it says it, I believe it. Even if it says crazy things. God created the earth, heavens and the earth, in, in, seven, in six days. God had uh, Elisha uh, taken up into, into heaven uh, in a chariot uh, of fire. God raised Jesus from the dead. He made an axe head float. He made a donkey speak. I mean, do you believe those things? There was a flood that covered the world, that eight and all were saved. Do you believe those things? Do you take them at the word? Or do you doubt? Do you question? Do you wonder? Well, because all of our current knowledge and these things just can't happen, and there's got to be another explanation, and we go on and on and on dismissing when the centurion just said, Jesus, say it, and it'll be done. And that's the kind of faith that amazes Jesus. Now, yes, everything we read in Scripture needs to be taken in context, and we have to properly interpret it. There are some things that are allegorical. There are some things that are parables. They're not real. But a lot of the Bible is historical, historical record, including the miracles. And it's not that hard to tell the difference when you read it. So what does faith look like? It looks like praying all the time. Praying till Jesus comes again. And it looks like taking Jesus at his word. Last example. This comes from the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What does faith look like? It looks like putting things into practice. It looks like doing the work. It's so easy to say I'm faithful and then really do nothing to justify that statement. You can say, hey, I have faith that uh, God's going to make me successful in business. And then if you do nothing to be successful in business, you don't have any faith. Because faith is the doing. It's the believing and the doing. One of Jesus' followers, the Apostle Paul, uh, wrote, uh, or actually his brother, James, wrote uh, uh, in the book of James, show me your, uh, your faith, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. James understood this connection that there was a doing that result that comes from faith. So these are just three things that popped into my head in preparation of this sermon here. Praying all the time, taking him at his word, and doing what he says. The older I get, the more prayer, the more trust, and the more God, more effort God expects of me. Let me ask you a question for those of you that have been in Simi Church a while. We've been, we've been here coming up on two years as a church, but many of us have been Christians, and we've been followers of Jesus for many years, decades. Are you growing? Do you pray more now than you did before? Do you, do you trust Jesus' words more now than you did before? Are you doing more now than you did before? We got to be people of faith. That's not what the Nazarenes were because they had all their bias and all their prejudices and all their reasons why not, and they couldn't see the fact that God's gift was standing in their presence. So remember at the beginning, who's watching? Not Jesus the Rottweiler, but Jesus is watching. And he's looking to see who has faith. Who among us is going to stand before him and say, I had faith. 
At this time, we're going to close out with a word of prayer. So I'm going to ask you to stand on up. Appreciate you being here to worship with us today. We're going to close in prayer, and then you'll be dismissed.